Okay, uh, we're now doing a little switch here, folks. Um, we've got uh, Phil Ward here on from Ohio State University. Kia ora, tenakoto, katoa, Phil. Uh, welcome to uh, University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Uh, I had to ask Rolly what the weather was like there. He said it's snowing and uh, very cold. So what's it like in Columbus uh, this evening, mate? Oh, it's, it's 85 degrees and balmy. No, it's uh, <laughs> uh, 36. Degrees and brisk. Right, right. I hear you. Um, I just want to, first of all, ask people about the weather because we've got some people coming in from other countries. But the other thing is then just explain briefly uh, when I've met people or know people. And I was very fortunate to meet Phil almost 30 years ago now, I think it was August uh, 1990, both of us came into Ohio State, Phil from Australia, and I was from uh, Vancouver Island, but before that from New Zealand, uh, and it's very nice to have you here, and uh, wonderful that we're still in touch after 30 years, so yes, thank, thank you for you. being here, Phil, well, uh, very much appreciate it. Um, what I'll do is I'll ask everyone here to introduce themselves first, and then we'll go to you if that's okay, Phil. Uh, then you Sounds fine. A lot of my original work began, um, I can't really say the name of the university because it's a competitor to Ohio State, but the, the, the state, or what we call the school up north, uh, <laughs> yes. the ball, uh, in mathematics. Um, Excellent. Uh, in Michigan. Yes. Don't say the M word in front of Ohio State people. It makes them so <laughs> crazy. Yes. Exactly. My, my yeah. parents are all from that say, place. Can I, so. can I do it? Because I'm from the Columbus area. O-H. I-O. I-O. I just have to apologize. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to talking tonight. Sure. Look, let me start with a, a general question. Um, why is physical education a subject matter in our curriculum. And, and to give you an example of this, I'm going to use China as an example. Um, most people in China, once they graduate a university, never again exercise much except for maybe dance on a Friday night. They don't move to parks until they retire uh, when they do Tai Chi and whatnot. And a very real question, I mean, it, it's not true for everybody. The more wealthier can, you know, go to some clubs and so on. But there's a very strong culture of work ethic in China and people don't have much time to do much else. And I, I guess the question I would ask if we look at America for a moment is, why is physical education a, a subject matter in our curriculum? And it's, a, it's not rhetorical, so I'd be interested in what you think the answers are to that. Well, for me, right, it's because I'm middle school trained and believe in middle school philosophy. And so I think that P, that physical education is a subject matter in middle school because it's my job to expose them to all aspects of life, whether that's art or music or drama or math or chemistry, um, all the, of that makes the well -rounded, them the well absolutely an argument. Is the well-rounded is the argument, mm -hmm. yes. All right. Any other reasons to have physical education as a subject matter in schools? I think in physical education, the people can interact with other people, you know, directly. It's not like, uh, how to say, 
it's like a physical exper physical experience that is different from uh, the classroom learning experiences. So in PE context, the people are actually interact with, you know, physically interact with peers and they learn not only motor skills, but also, you know, some other soft skills as well. So that is, I think, that really matters for, for the students' success in the long term in their life. So okay. it's different from uh, indoor classroom learning experiences. So PE is very open, very interactive, and yeah. So okay. What other reasons um, do you think we have a subject matter in schools, apart from the fact somebody thought it was a good idea? <laughs> A subject matter of physical education, Philip, or just a subject matter in schools. Why is physical education a subject matter in schools? What what purpose does it serve in the education of young people? Yeah. So when you when you asked the question first, I thought it was rhetorical because I was I was going to say, well, why isn't it? A, why wouldn't it be a subject matter in a in a school curriculum? I think physical education is uniquely positioned because of the nature it can be taught um, to, to target a lot of, um, uh, to target uh, outcomes, I suppose, in children that they may not be able to uh, uh, achieve or accomplish in other subjects where there tends to be a lot more, uh, I suppose, accountability uh, and uh, I suppose a, a high stakes assessment as well too. Um, so I think uh, physical education, uh, it is a subject matter uh, in America, but I suppose it kind of suffers a lot for what's been done in its name uh, in, in America because the subject matter as it stands probably isn't as good as what it, it might be. Um, but what it does, as I said, so what it does offer, I suppose, in subject matter is a unique environment where students get to practice a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, physical skills, obviously, for, uh, which we, we, we've known for a long time, but in particular, a lot of social skills as well, too. So we're talking, it's a unique place where students can learn, but they can learn socially. Uh, and I suppose then that might lead on to more uh, social outcomes, but also effective outcomes as well too, where students have an opportunity to, I suppose, um, practice these skills in a, in a practical environment rather than hearing about them or reading about them or maybe being uh, uh, withheld with or rest restricted, I suppose, within a common classroom environment. Okay. Any other thoughts? Uh, I guess I look at it from an, uh, my elementary physical education lens. I would really hope that we wanted to foster the physical development and individualized physical development of children. So maybe in essence, they could become better learners, trying to take the standards-based idea out of my brain when I answer that and mm -hmm. channel my inner Vygotsky philosophies of why play is so important for the development of children. Okay. Other thoughts? Um, if I focus on healthy and physically active lifestyles, I think experience of enjoyable physical activity in elementary school, yeah, because I, I was in elementary school back in South Korea, that's why I'm talking about elementary school PE. Uh, if children experience uh, enjoyable physical activity in elementary school, it will help them to pursue physically active lifestyle along the lifespan. And also, I think um, I did a focus group interview back in South Korea with some PE general PE just, specialists. Just and, recently, yeah, and generalist, and they said um, 
children express their emotions more directly compared to other classes in PE class. So Mm -hmm. I think that is, that indicates PE class might be the best place to teach students social skills Mm -hmm. and how to express their feelings and thoughts in a a proper way. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's why. Um, There's one thought just just come to my mind. I think the most, uh, I think social skill, emotion skill is very important. And also I think of physical education also can teach students motor skills. You know, the people can learn one skill, uh, for example, one sports skill. If they learn that, they can make, might be benefits for, for his life. Mm-hmm. So for example, people can learn how to play soccer and then maybe after graduation can still play soccer for a lifelong time. Mm-hmm. So it's about social, uh, emotional, and also motor skills, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I think those are all good reasons. Um, before I share where I'm going to come from, <clears throat> uh, at Harvard University, the well, you know, probably the the mecca, if you like, for intellectual uh, work in the United States. The most single most popular course there is a course on happiness. It has an average of three thousand students per semester wanting to take it, but they can only fit eight hundred in the classroom. And it's been that way for a while. And I'd like you to reflect for a minute on why that is the case at Harvard. Why is happiness the single most sought after course, hands down? Engineers want to take it. Scientists want to take it. Psychologists want it. They need to take it. But but, um, lots of people want to take it. Okay. And, And I want to suggest to you that one reason is that most people struggle with trying to be happy. They need to learn, in one sense, how to be happy. And I also want to suggest to you that what we do as movement, I'm not going to call it physical activity, um, but what we do as movement is, the, is tied to other subject areas, such as leisure, recreation, and um, it's the opposite of work. And we spend enormous amounts of time in our lifetime working. And some people spend enormous amounts of time as couch potatoes or computer potatoes or whatever, sitting and not being active. But I want to suggest that the, the primary outcome of physical education is to teach students joy in moving. Enjoyment. I don't mean fun, because fun is fleeting. Um, you can have fun playing volleyball very badly, shooting off one arm and, you know, goofing around, that isn't sustainable in the long term. The social interactions that you had, some of you have talked about and the, the motor skills you talked about, they, they won't be there after two or three days of hitting a ball off one's arm and spending more time chasing it or not. But the fun I'm talking about is, well, the fun of a group of preschoolers running out onto a, a playground, happy to be outside or whatever sport you play or do, walking or gardening, and you get up and you go, wow, that was a really good thing I just did. I had joy in that. Mm -hmm. I want to suggest that what we teach has got to produce that outcome or else I'm not sure people will continue to move. People are going to have heart attacks and exercise or maybe not have heart attacks, but exercise to avoid heart attacks. That's the be physically active argument. 
Um, people want to be motor skills and meet the, the national and state standards. That's sort of teachers doing their job argument. We've got the whole rounded person argument, which I think is good. Uh, it's grounded in the ludic arts of art and music and, 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 and movement. But at the end of the day, something missing, I think, in our standards and in our lesson outcomes is that, is that kids would willingly come to physical education because they find it joyful, as opposed to going there because they don't like math uh, or uh, going there for other reasons. So my, my point tonight is that the only way you can experience sustained joy, you can get short-term joy, but if you're learning to sail a boat and you don't learn to sail a boat, your joy is going to very quickly go out the door. You've got to be skillful to sail a boat, to play volleyball, to run with a friend, to, to play racquetball. Every morning I work out and I watch these guys who are like, oh, much older than me and I'm an old man, but um, I watch them play and I wait for their knees to crash, but they play every morning and, and they play racquetball and I'm, you know, every time I watch them, I think, well, one of them's going to come out with a wrecked knee, but they have a great deal of fun and enjoyment and, I, and they're moderately skillful. They don't hit each other with the racquetball. They can have a sustained game and they, they get great joy from that. Uh, everything that I'm going to talk about tonight is about helping a teacher to help children be more competent and in being more competent, access the joy in movement. I'm not particularly hung up on a particular movement. I don't mind if it's yoga or, or um, going for a run or playing sport. I, 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 I don't believe in the argument that if you teach them volleyball, they're going to play volleyball throughout their lifetime. I think there is little evidence that, well, I, let me rephrase that, a very small percentage of the world's population engage on lifelong sport. Most do not. Most garden. Most go for walks. Um, if you want someone to be physically active, uh, I said at the conference recently, you should have a baby so you walk it in a trolley regularly, uh, or you should have a dog so you walk. Cats are not very useful for physical activity if you like to take in the sights. Uh, uh, you don't typically go walking with cats. So, um, Ben, I have no idea how to access my PowerPoint. How do I do that? Yeah, this should not be a problem with any luck. Uh, Donald is just heading up there, um, and he is going to uh, hopefully uh, help you share the screen. Okay, uh, while, that, while that's going on, let me just share that what I'm going to talk about tonight are a, a set of sub-studies um, and I'm not really talking so much about research side of it, but just about the outcomes. Um, but I want to talk about that they've occurred in oh, more than nine separate countries, uh, including China, Korea, Japan, Turkey, uh, USA, Belgium, um, Israel, Cyprus. I don't know, a couple of others I can't think of. Uh, right. No, no, uh, Turkey, I think. Uh, you've got a few in there. Uh, Phil, if you go to the bottom of your screen, can you see a green button that says share? Yeah, I got it. You okay. click on that, that should allow you to pop up your PPT. Oh, okay. I will open my PowerPoint right now. Give me a moment. Uh, no worries. Um, so my, my point that I'm making with this data is um, the sample size for it. Um, 
uh, exceeds. Oops, I don't know where I am. Let me see. Uh, no worries, Phil. You could share that for a minute. Okay. Um, All right. The sample size exceeds um, 12,000 teachers worldwide. That's a really large sample size. Uh, okay. There you go. Good. All right. So. Uh, let me see. Should we all go now with any luck? All right, good. There you go. Oh, Cheers. Um, Thanks, Phil. This, this is my main argument, that the practice of teaching should be grounded in the content to be taught relative to the needs of the students and the state and national standards. I, I just want to point out that I'm not necessarily sure the state and national standards should get precedence over the needs of the students, but uh, in a high-stakes environment, you've got to include um, standards. Uh, but to do this, the teacher must know their content knowledge. And there is very strong evidence. In fact, there is very little evidence that they know, that most teachers know their content, whatever that content is. Um, many math teachers and uh, history teachers can't pass the tests that they give their students in high school. Um, Dala Castellini did a study of physical education teachers in the same way and found that I think 60% of them or so didn't pass the test that they gave their ninth grade students. And they had like 60% or less on the score. I, I want to suggest that that's not really the content that I'm talking about, but it's an indicator of what I'm going to be talking about. So an introductory task, I know some of you won't know this, but, but just bear with me. I want you to consider a handstand and you, you, you're teaching a handstand to someone who can't do it, and your goal is to teach them, you know, to do a handstand on their own over time. And I want you to consider what the technique of the handstand is, and, and, and I don't know, how many of you know, know, the, know the technique of a handstand? Oh, okay, well, let me help you with that. Um, you, you have locked arms, they're shoulder width apart, you lunge forward so that the front leg is bent, the back leg stays straight, you kick the back leg up by pushing off the floor with the lower leg and you weight, you weight bear with the hands. Um, it, that's sort of the technique of the handstand. And then if I asked you to sort of teach a handstand, um, you might start off in preschool and kindergarten with kids running around in animal walks and bouncing around on their hands and feet, just doing stuff, weight-bearing on their hands, not too much. And then as they got on later on, you might introduce them to, you know, things where they have to balance with their hands, knee stands and shoulder balances and various balances and uh, doing a push-up with straight, uh, uh, at the top of the push-up with straight arms and so on. And then eventually you'd go into some specific handstand progressions. And if I asked you to select um, the teaching progressions that a group for a group of 14 year olds who have had at least one previous unit in, in gymnastics before you might select activities that were further up your list of skills to teach than the basic stuff that was taught in preschool. Similarly, if I asked you to teach six year olds a handstand, you wouldn't be telling them to kick up on their own and hold their own balance. You'd be doing some animal walks and weight bearing activities. Everyone with me so far? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's important you understand those four criteria because I'm going to come back to it in just a minute. So Deborah Ball, at the, uh, who is a mathematician, um, former president of AERA, and um, 
uh, an excellent scholar, leading scholar in the world in content knowledge. Uh, in um, in 19, oh, I don't know, um, when was this? Uh, 2005, 2000 to 2005, a group of researchers around the world, um, Deborah Ball at the University of Michigan, um, Klickman and a couple of people in Germany, uh, uh, Lofman, in, uh, they were in secondary mathematics uh, in, in um, Australia, in Monash University in science, Lofren, and I was working at, at Ohio State. And we all came across the same concepts at about the same three to four year period. It was really quite interesting. We didn't realize it until about three years later. Uh, but what we came across is what Deborah Ball sort of took the lead on talking about, and that is that content knowledge has two components to it. One is common content knowledge, and the other is specialized content knowledge. Now, common content knowledge, um, well, actually, let me go back. Common content knowledge is the knowledge you need to perform an activity. So when she was talking about math, it was, well, how do you do long division? Uh, you need to know multiplication, estimation, and subtraction. Uh, and and uh, uh, in physical education, you need to know the technique of skills uh, to perform them. And later on, how to make tactical decisions in game sense. Uh, or issues on uh, weight training, you know, what are the, what's the fit principle or whatever, or whatever it might be. And this is the knowledge that everybody has. If you do, if you go to um, learn, I don't know, golf, everybody's going to learn this CCK, this common content knowledge. But what she discovered and what we all sort of came to the conclusion is that the knowledge you need to teach this, and I'm not talking about pedagogy. In fact, most of what I'm going to talk about tonight is not related to pedagogy in any way other than pedagogical content knowledge, which I'll come to in a minute. Mm. Uh, specialized content knowledge is the knowledge you need only if you're going to teach CCK. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit about this in a moment, but just to give you an example, when I talk about it in physical education, I talk about CCK being knowledge of rules and etiquette and technique and tactics and safety, and CSCK being involving error detection, uh, knowing what er common errors students might make, uh, the tasks, how, what the tasks are to teach things. I'll come back to that in a minute. And how to represent the tasks. So if I was teaching, I don't know, a, um, uh, I'll use gymnastics again, a, a, a pencil roll or a log roll where the student stays straight on the ground and rolls down a mat with their arms over their head and they're straight. If I said to a group of people in New York, it's like a log roll, they might not know what a log roll is unless they were a bit older than they were, but preschoolers might not know what a log is. Um, and so how you represent content for students really matters. Um, it also matters in, in this way. If I'm teaching basketball and I teach basketball by dribbling through cones and start with the left hand and the right, alternating the left and right and dribbling in between cones. And uh, then I go to the set shot and chest passing and the layup. I, I come to understand basketball a certain way. But if I learn basketball in a 3v3 environment without dribbling, where it's primarily a passing game 
and I can do shooting pretty quickly, almost on day one, I'll understand the game of basketball much differently. And I will be able to play the game of basketball almost immediately. Why in soccer, basketball, some other sports as well, dribbling is emphasized over passing, I don't know, because the ball is advanced down the court and advanced down up the field in those two sports through passing, not dribbling. Dribbling is one of the most difficult things for people, for kids to learn. So it, it should be developed slowly over time. But my, my point is simply that if you were a child in either of those two conditions, what you would understand the game of basketball to be is different. And the, the larger point is it was how it was represented to the students. Um, so uh, com uh, if I talk about doing a sit-up, uh, a common content knowledge is the technique of the sit-up. You put your hands on your chest, you, you uh, keep your knees bent, feet flat on the floor, you do your sit-up. And specialized content knowledge, this is an example of simple at the top to more advanced sit-up exercises. Pretty straightforward. But if you've got different students, some are preschoolers, some are, I don't know, middle schoolers, and some are athletes, the specialized content knowledge you will select to help them learn the skill, or if they can't do it, will be dependent upon how much specialized content knowledge you know. If you only know three things, you're not going to be very helpful to the three groups you've got there. The, the deeper, the more um, tasks that you know, in, uh, that represented by this middle column, the more you're going to be able to help children. Shulman said that the art of teaching or the act of teaching is adapting your content knowledge to the needs of the children. And so if you look at the pedagogical content knowledge column, you can only adapt to them if you have something to adapt from. And so specialized content knowledge, we talk about it as a depth. The more you know, the more you're able to help. Um, everyone with me so far? Sure. Okay. So, so this is a very quick example. I'm going to rush through this, but the same idea for basketball, the deeper your content knowledge uh, here for a, um, I don't know, what is this, off the ball play and, and passing lanes, the more you can help progress someone from, from being a beginner to more competence. And so if you go back to the original example I gave in the, in the handstand and you said, well, what is common content knowledge that I asked you to talk about? What is specialized content knowledge? And what is pedagogical content knowledge? The critical elements are... The common, uh, the common content knowledge, the sequence of task progressions, the middle column is specialized content knowledge. And whenever you adapted it to a particular grade level or to children, this becomes pedagogical content knowledge. Now the trick here, the trap, this is actually the pedagogical content knowledge of pedagogical content knowledge. Um, the trap is that the middle column serves as both SCK and pedagogical content knowledge when it's select or a piece of pedagogical content knowledge when it's selected um, by the teacher. And um, the thing about pedagogical content knowledge, and I'm only talking about content knowledge right now, um, is it involves other domains of knowledge, knowledge of the student, knowledge of curriculum, knowledge of pedagogy, knowledge of the context, and you could add a whole bunch of other stuff as other people do. But most people, I think, settle on those five variables. A little bit of a debate on curriculum, whether a curricular knowledge belongs in there or not. 
So common content knowledge is everything you've ever learned when someone gave you a, uh, a test in, in, in school and you, um, you answered a multiple choice question or they asked you to perform it and they, gave, they assessed, did a skill test on you and that's what happens in university content classes. Specialised content knowledge is a little different and the question is how to measure that depth of what students know and to this we, we go to the, the state south of you and to a leader in our field, Judy Rink, and I'm not going to go into this in much detail, uh, but I'm assuming you'll know what I'm talking about here. She classified content development as informing tasks, extending tasks, refining tasks, and applying tasks. And in short, informing task is the first thing you introduce, and that's important because every other task is based on that. Extending tasks make it more difficult more easy or easier. Refining tasks improve the technique or the tactical performance, and applying tasks are game-like tasks. Now, the typical model in America, uh, and actually often around the world, um, is that you start with an informing task, do a few refining tasks, and jump almost to the game. Um, now, that would probably not be a bad idea if you're using teaching games for understanding, um, but I'm not talking about people who do that. I'm talking about most teachers in the USA um, who get to games pretty quickly and don't spend much time uh, applying. There is one sport where they do a great deal of extending. Anyone want to guess what activity in America teachers always use a bunch of extending tasks? Swimming. They don't throw kids in the pool if they can't swim first and they make sure they progress them really slowly. But they tend not to do that with any other activity in, Amer in, in most schools. So um, Judy Rink's idea was, it was really good. It's a nice category, but we can think about how to represent a teacher's knowledge by saying, well, for everything you're teaching, if you're teaching the forearm pass in volleyball or the set shot in basketball or whatever it might be, um, if you're looking at extending, refining, and applying tasks as a numerator on an on a equation and, and uh, uh, the informing tasks at the bottom, what you get is sometimes something that looks like this. There were four informing tasks. They taught the set shot. They taught uh, chest pass, two other things. And they put them in a game and they extended them a little bit. They made the kids stand further apart for the set shot and further apart for the chest pass. And if you look at this, the ratio comes out to be one. And conversely, if you had more extending, refining and applying tasks and only four informing tasks, the ratio would be three. And it's not important to know anything more than that, but I'm going to use that in just a moment. This is a, a, a graph. Um, and what's important here is this arrow. Uh, I don't know if you can see my cursor on here, but um, um, so the arrow is the 3.0. And what you have is a group of participants that actually are almost ordered in terms of their competence or expertise in teaching, um, what was this? Uh, badminton, I think. Um, and uh, you only get, th these were experts in teaching, these were teachers, these were pre-service teachers. Typically, pre-service teachers do not have much experience with badminton. And it turns out they don't have much depth of content knowledge because of, uh, not because of that, but they don't have much depth of content knowledge. But these other people on the right weren't just teachers they were 
considered to be really good badminton teachers. And you can see that um, they have a scores above 3.0, that, that 3.0. I can't tell you that a score of nine is substantively better than a score of six because it's all in how you use it. But we have consistently found with, as I said, about 12,000 teachers worldwide, that 3.0 is a big indicator, a good judgment to say whether you, whether you have depth in content or not. Just to make that point, here's a study of some Chinese teachers. Um, now, the thing about China that's really interesting is unlike America, where uh, uh, most universities have three or four content classes and in each content class they have, um, oh, I don't know, um, uh, maybe five content areas they cover where they spend two or three weeks on it. If, you're a, if, you're, if soccer is your major in China, you have somewhere between four to five classes, semester-long classes in it. And, and this data um, shows that the vast majority of the, of the um, whoops, sorry, vast majority of the 384 um, did not get 3.0. That vertical bar in the middle is the, is the 3.0 criterion. And most teachers didn't know their content. Now, that, that is the specialized content knowledge. They did know their technique rather well. After four classes, you can perform pretty well and you know the technique. So I want to talk about four problematic assumptions here. And one is that teachers have good CCK as a result of going through K-12 curricula and as a result of playing games and sports in schools. That teachers have acquired good SCK from, from those same experiences. That teachers acquire SCK in their teacher education program and that teachers acquire SCK through experience. And to save you a long story, I'm going to say none of those statements are true. In fact, the, the, after you leave number one, they get terribly low. They're, they're, they're terrible. And it doesn't matter what country we do the studies in. So assumption number one, teachers have good CCK as a result of, well, having been taught physical education or playing sports. So uh, here are just three studies on, on health-related fitness, right? Health-related fitness is the, is the content area in America that, that most students have a lot in. They have several physiology classes and they have to teach fitness. And um, going back as far as 98 and as recently, much more recently than 2012, in fact, the studies go right up to 2018, study after study after study shows that about 60% is what our, our teachers know in health-related fitness. Now, we're not talking about the health-related fitness you need for a PhD. We're talking about the health-related fitness you need to teach high school or middle school or, or elementary uh, school. Uh, and and uh, I'll come back to that in just a minute. So assumption number two um, is that Teachers have acquired SCK, and here are just four sports randomly uh, chosen, and this is 72 um, PE majors and um, 119 other majors. And these are in basic instruction classes in the first year in the university. So what happens is we grab these students, um, about 200 of them. Uh, we've done it with more than 1,000 at Ohio State, and we, we ask them, um, to tell us what they know about badminton, tennis, basketball, and volleyball. And this 3.0 at the top is where we'd like them to be if they were, if they were knowledgeable. 
and you can see they don't know much. What does that mean? It means that they really know for everything they're teaching, one progression, not three, not four, but one progression. So uh, assumption three is that they acquire CCK and SCK. Uh, this is a graph. Um, it's in percent. The pink is CCK and this is SCK is the blue. And this is basketball, the most commonly taught sport in America. So um, I, only 100, 116 folks here, multiple choice test. The, 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 the um, first two columns up people who play the sport, they know their CCK about 67%, and, uh, but they don't know SCK that well. Playing the sport doesn't help them know SCK, and the non-players are, well, quite low. Now, basketball is the best sport. This is soccer, um, which is not that popular a sport in America, despite what the Major League Soccer people would tell you. And uh, again, here the data are really quite low. So this is SCK and CCK. So we did a comparative study here between every university in Ohio and every university in South Korea. Uh, 17 um, Korean universities, if you're a physical education teacher, you can take up to 17 content classes um, in your degree. And in Ohio universities, the range was one to seven uh, content classes. Most of what's taught in both Korea and in, in um, uh, Ohio, uh, except Ohio State, um, is uh, CCK, not SCK. So this provides some evidence that SCK is not a part of the teacher education curriculum. So here's a study in, what, two, four, six countries, um, where we went in and interviewed and, and got the syllabi from, from different countries. And um, fortunately, we had people who spoke the languages uh, when they were not in English. Um, and we found the following, that the, the, the blue is, um, the, yeah, CCK, the red is SCK, and this is the percentage of the syllabus focused on one of these two, CCK or SCK. And you can see that SCK gets pretty well short shrifted, and CCK, it's not like they're learning a lot of technique, they actually spend most of their time performing, which raises the question, should we be asking our pre-service teachers to perform if they really don't know that their CCK, they can't pass CCK tests, and they certainly don't know SCK. Uh, and this is um, the same, a study from, a, a similar sort of study, um, basically showing that most, pro, most universities focus on CCK very few on SCK. In fact, the only place SCK occurs in a content class or a methods class is when teachers are asked to write lesson plans. And if you've ever graded the pre-service teacher's lesson plan, you know they're just terrible. <laughs> Don't we, though? Don't we know that? Don't we know that? Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I think asking someone who doesn't know their content to write a lesson plan is a bad idea to begin with. Um, we typically give our students at Ohio State lesson plans and say, work from a good model. You can make any changes you want, but work from a good model. Um, asking them to come up with stuff they don't know, is, it's just, I, I think, I mean, if you think of the personnel in America spent on grading lesson plans, 
that's a lot of time for most people who go out to teach and they will never write a lesson plan again in their life. Yeah, Phil, I think that's a very good point. I think that's what we perhaps used to do. Uh, but now I think, well, in your program here, Judy, what do you do? As far as getting students to understand content development, yeah. I, I believe the fact that we can't look at someone else's lesson plan and make sure it connects to the students that I'm teaching space, equipment, all of the other factors that we have to consider to individualize learning. It's a good place to start. You know, I think about, you're right, Phil, the students yeah. really don't understand how to connect the content. Uh, I see more and more, especially with the single sport athletes that we are working with now, when we put them in different situations and actually get them to teach outside of their comfort zone. Um, we do not do, I think, uh, an ample job in physical education settings across the globe. I'll just go there of putting kids in spaces and going with our previous talk with uh, Dr. Mesmer of problematizing physical education and putting them in different situations to learn. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, we're just telling them here's what you must do and, and that's not going to motivate students to seek the questions and that was something we talked about our, our previous conversation with the... Judy, I don't think that's a PE problem. I mean, I work with the middle grades education program here at UNCG, and so I'm, I'm supervising, you know, two dozen middle grades undergrads who can't write a lesson plan either. I mean, it, the pain that Phil was talking about a minute ago is real. I don't think it's, I don't think it's just P. Yeah, I, I think you may have misunderstood what I was saying, though. I'm, I'm not a believer in prescriptive lesson plans. I'm, I believe in developing the adaptive ability of the teacher. Right. That is, a teacher takes content that they know will work, looks at the student needs, and adapts it. That's um, what we hope they do. That's right? what we that's, hope they that's do. That's what we hope yes. they do. But so we, we, how many we times actually, we heard people yeah, saying, go to PE Central, and I pull off a lesson plan, and I'm going to do that Monday morning. Yeah, well, that's not going to work. But my point is, you can't adapt what you don't know. Yes. And, and you can't write, if you don't know anything, you can't write a good lesson plan. That's the problem. And right. so what we want our teachers to know and what we do with them to do that is a strategy called repeated teaching and rehearsals. And so instead of teaching a unit of like five lessons or whatever, um, we, we ask them to teach the same lesson several times, as many as seven times. So they get really good at understanding how to adapt that lesson to, a single, to the students in their class. This is work that came out of Michigan State University with Madeline Lambert. Uh, and um, it's, it's, it's remarkable how our students begin to understand how the repeated teaching of the same lesson, how they get better at understanding the nuances of how they present the content. And so is, in our isn't that what we hope for when they become full-time teachers and they get to adjust their lesson plan yeah. across, you know, by Friday afternoon, I'm fingers crossed that lesson plan is tremendously different and improved since Monday. Yeah, I, I would like to think that except that the evidence, the overwhelming evidence in physical education is that practicing teachers less than 5% use lesson plans. Most people fly by the seat of their pants. Mm -hmm. Park, right. They call it parking lot planning. Yeah. But one reason for that, I think, um, lies in the fact that the lesson plans we ask teachers to write in universities are totally unsuited to a teacher in the field. So, for example, 
we, we, it's a very important strategy to help a teacher think, a pre-service teacher think through their management strategies. But if you're a practicing teacher and you don't have your management strategies in order, you're one of the people who is leaving the field in the first three to five years. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think we think those things are separate. We teach them that way. We have a course in management. We have a course in methodology. Mm -hmm. We have a course in whatever. So I, I agree with you, Dr. Ward, that I think we're, we're missing some key integration pieces that need to get looked at as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, my introductory class, I spend um, one lecture of 15 on management. Right. Mm -hmm. um, they, um, we, we come in, everyone has a laptop in front of them. They have the lesson plan in front of them. I, I will throw questions out like, what if you do that second extension task and the kid can't do it? You find some kids who can't do it. What are you going to do? Or what, what is a congruent feedback statement to make for that refining task that you made? And they edit their plans as we're talking about these things, individually, independent of each other, but they edit it in response to what we're doing. And it's usually embedded in the um, readings for the week. So in our, in our introductory class, what happens is that students come in on Thursday, they come in on a Friday, they come in on a they go online on a Thursday and do a test, uh, a 30-item multiple choice test on the content of a chapter. Um, the first 15 minutes of the, the of, the, of the lecture, they take a test on the content of the lesson plan they're teaching. It includes what are, you know, things like what are the objectives of the lesson, um, what's the task development of whatever it is we're teaching, what are the critical elements of what we're teaching? What sort of experiences do we want children to have? Um, how are you planning on um, personalizing and, 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 and caring for students, you know, in terms of caring behaviors with students? And that takes the first 15 minutes of the lesson. The rest of the lesson is, you know, modifying lesson plans every single week. And, you know, they have all their lessons videotaped. And when they do, they do, um, lab teaching in the afternoon for two hours and that's all videotaped and they reflect on that. They make more edits and then ultimately halfway through the course, they go out and teach those same lessons they've been learning um, uh, to three, three classes a day of about eight students for each of our students. Mm -hmm. um, that's the repeat. That's the, the method we use. Um, and I'm just going to rush through this, but I just have a quick quiz for you here. And, the question for you is, which of these um, correlate with deeper SCK? In other words, your degree background, your content expertise in college, your age, um, whether you played the sport, your gender, um, and so on. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm going to rush because I'm sh short on time. And, and the short answer is, there's no meaningful correlation. In fact, the more you teach, there's actually a negative correlation. And in, in China, where they have a teaching rank that goes from one to five, one being low, five being high, um, well, it's, it's not good. Um, this is a study of 384 soccer teachers in China who are, had majors in soccer. And the 3.0 category is up here, the bar for that. And this is rank three, two, one. Or oh, actually, I gave the rank order wrong. Senior, there's another rank, but we didn't measure it. And you can see it's curvy linear. Oops, sorry. And it's not good no matter where you are. Uh, 
So what can, we, what can we do about this? Is this like a big problem? And by the way, everything I've just described, I could have put up in math, reading, science. Every subject area is dealing with exactly the same problems. It's not just physical education, except that we're a little bit ahead of them. So <laughs> just a reminder of where we are, what we're talking about here, it's this adaptability. Um, and um, uh, what I'm talking about here is a teacher go, has a lesson plan, they go into a lesson, they, they, have a, they have their task set up, the kids do the first task, the teacher observes that the task was pitched too high for some kids, too low for some kids, or it was just right. I don't know, the three little bear model, I guess. Um, and um, the, the next task, that the teacher may depart from the lesson plan. They may make it simpler for some, harder for others. They may do intra-task development. This is the adaptability that Shulman talked about when he said PCK you adapt instruction to the needs of the student, the needs of the students in this case being their ability to do the task that's in front of them. Um, and uh, a teacher must know content to do that adapting or else they have nothing to work with. Um, again, if you only have two of those sit up examples, you really can't help the person at the very bottom there, or maybe even the middle people get stronger. So here's a study. Um, this is pre-test, post-test. And the question is, can we, in a teacher education program, get people to at least 3.0? And this is the effect of a content class that focuses on SCK as well as CCK. And you can see that we were able to achieve that in these sports. Um, this is another way of looking at it. Um, pre to post differences. Um, the, the green dotted line is SCK and we're able to achieve it for our students. So a teacher education program can teach SCK. Um, which is good. Uh, here's a study, a, a research study. Um, it looks pretty much like this. Um, you've got four teachers. Each teacher teaches a control group and an experimental group. In this case, it's an SCK group. Um, they get a, um, uh, and we watch for 10 lessons. Um, uh, I think we do it in badminton. We like using badminton because it's one of the hardest sports to teach. And if we can do it in badminton, we can pretty much do it anywhere as, as we've done it in soccer and tennis and other sports. Uh, so basically one teacher teaches four classes two the way they normally teach. Then they get an intervention of usually a somewhere between a two to six hour workshop. And then they teach two more, uh, two more classes of about 10 lessons. Um, and we compare them um, in these lessons. This is something you don't want to do if you're a researcher. Uh, we select students, some students who are low skilled, some who are average skilled, some who are high skilled. And for all 10 lessons, we code every single response they make, everything. It's not a sample. It's a complete census of what these students do. Every single movement of the racket and move, their movement on the court. Uh, and we've done this study um, in a couple, in three different places, one in Belgium, one in Alabama, one in North Carolina, and one in Ohio. Well, yeah, three, three places, but two of them were once two, two states were combined. Um, so I don't know if you know anything about statistics, but um, if you're judging an effect size and statistics, which is the difference between a control group and an experimental group, 0.2 is good, 0.5 is good, 0.8 is like really good. And the US Department of Education says anything that's 0.25, 
this is really low, I might add, is a good, is a, is a substantively important effect. It so, is the U.S. Department of Education. Yeah. Let's just start with that, shall we? Yeah. So um, a couple of things here. Uh, just very quickly, um, th these were quasi-experimental designs. All that meant is that students weren't randomly selected. This was randomly selected. Uh, number of teachers in the group, number of classes. These are the effect sizes. The important one is the student effect size because it's most real. Um, these are all, all off the chart because the teachers were so bad that anything would have made them better. Um, but they were done, uh, this group of teachers here, um, was done in Alabama. These were first-year teachers. Uh, this was a teacher who was reasonably experienced, um, considered a pretty good badminton teacher, not great, but pretty good. And these were teachers who'd been teaching badminton for more than 10 years in middle, these were all middle school studies. But this basically means you're taking a child, if it were a standardized test, from about the 50th percentile to about the 87th percentile. Um, it doesn't mean that they're badminton world-class players. It just means they're competent enough in the content they were being taught to play the game of badminton. But this work has been replicated all over the place now. Um, so the, the sort of take-home message I want to give you here is you can only improve instruction at scale um, by focusing on three things. You can improve the teacher's instructional practice. You can improve... Um, the students' learning practice by engaging them more in the activity, making it meaningful, um, or you can improve the content. Um, and, and ideally, these three things are highly interrelated. And we tend not to pay, we think we're paying attention to content, but much of what we learn in teacher education is not related to either of these three things. It's wishful knowledge, theory-driven knowledge, that has little application that, that teachers need. And um, uh, that position is a position that's been articulated by Pam Grossman at Stanford, um, Deborah Ball in Michigan, um, uh, who's the, uh, uh, Cochran Smith at Boston College and uh, myself in physical education. Um, these are just where the studies came from that I reported on. We've got lots more if you're interested there in the, papers and I'll, I'll sort of shut up and let you ask questions and or we can chat. All right. Hey, Phil, thank you very much. Uh, very much appreciated. Uh, I think the, all the students have some good questions. I know I have a couple. <laughs> so uh, anybody? Okay, so I will start. So uh, since you have many research in China, <laughs> I would like to speak something because you have research on Chinese, especially on Chinese soccer, campus soccer, mm -hmm. because I was the committee member of National uh, uh, Campus Coach Association, and also I was the instructor for the campus soccer in our province. So my job is to train the elementary teacher to teach soccer. So this is my background. So that's why I'm, I want to speak first, that why I'm very interested in that. Because I realized in China that uh, actually, the elementary teacher have very low level of uh, the CCK and SCK in yes. soccer. The reason why, because the campus soccer is like policy driven. It just emerged in, in, the, in the last five or six years, I think. So uh, when those teachers in, in, the, in, in, in university, actually they have very superficial knowledge 
in soccer. So uh, that's why the uh, even though they can search some some teachings drills on the internet, but actually they can't engage the students in the schools. So that's our mission to teach the teachers to engage students, which we, which I think now related to the reading that might be try to improve their PCK as well. So we, what, what we teach uh, mainly focused on the some strategies that can uh, help the teachers to uh, progress the training sessions that can meet different needs of the students. So one of strategy that I that, that we teach the, the, the teachers are uh, steps. So it's uh, like a, uh, a acronym, acronym or okay. five words. Yeah. So the S is uh, space uh, and T is task. Uh, E is equipment, P is player, and S is, is uh, no, uh, then the other S is speed. So uh, you can just uh, change those variables in the training drill that you, you can make this training drill flexible uh, for, for different levels of, of students, you know, for beginners. So that's what are we doing uh, mainly. And also, uh, uh, reflect of my own experiences in our soccer world because I was a soccer player in China. I, I played Super League in China for eight years and uh, uh, in our soccer world, we always say a good soccer player might not be a good coach. You know, even, even Beham maybe not a good coach. Actually, he's not a good coach, I think. He's not coaching players. So that's uh, because for some players, even, even so, he plays soccer very good. And he has very high level of CCK and SCK in soccer, but he might have very low level of PCK. He, he actually doesn't know maybe how to teach soccer to kids. You know what I mean? Uh, so that's why in China, uh, every year, the, the government send the teachers overseas. So they, they send the teachers to France and they send the teacher to England. To, to learn how to teach soccer, uh, you know, uh, how to use different strategies to engage students uh, and also uh, to design the training drills based on the age groups of different students. And I was, I was sent to UK and I stayed there for three months for learning coaching uh, uh, skills. Okay, so that's all about soccer. So uh, my question, sorry, <laughs> so much about soccer. Yeah, so uh, my question is, uh, in terms of PCK, uh, should it be, uh, because in your article, I, I noticed that PCK is learned, is learned, or so should it be learned in, in a period of pre-service education, or should it be learned in, uh, you know, uh, when, uh, in a physical education, teacher education? So which, which, which stage? should it be learned? Because I noticed that if you learn in the previous service uh, teacher education uh, period, the challenging is the time because you don't have so much time. And also uh, sometimes in China, I know they will send teachers in the, in the last year, they will send teachers to schools. But the problem is there's no monitoring. So what, what is happening is like I can find a school and you know, sign the contract with the school and then bring the feedback letter from the teacher. Actually, the, pro the process is unknown. 
actually there, there, there is no feedback, there is no monitoring to see how their PCK are progressed in that period. So uh, I want to know just PCK, is it better to be learned in pre-service period or is it better to be learned in, uh, uh, after you know, continuous uh, physical education, teacher education? Yeah, um, to answer that question, um, let me come at it from two perspectives. Let me first of all say that Shulman was very correct in what he wrote about PCK, but he was in error in a number of ways. Um, uh, first, he never said that if you have PCK, you'll be a more effective teacher. He just implied it a lot. If you look at his work, you'll never see the word effective in there. Um, the second thing is, he said that PCK was stuff that occurred only in the most commonly taught activities, but what does that mean? I mean, I can say to someone, um, I, I want you to hold, I want you to do something, and as a piece of PCK, an element that a teacher says, it works for one child, but not for another. When it doesn't work for the child, is that no longer PCK? Um, and, and, Shulman never answered these questions, and for almost a decade, American researchers really didn't go there. Um, even today, many people write as though PCK is some holy grail. And the fact is, if you say, well, that's an example of PCK, whatever it is you're saying that is, well, it might work for one class, but not for another, or for one child and not for another. And, and so PCK, we view it as a continuum and uh, as a competence, almost like expertise. You're incompetent PCK to very competent PCK. Sometimes your incompetent PCK, immature PCK, works really well. Just, you get lucky. And sometimes your really good PCK, it looks brilliant, but it doesn't work. Um, it might be poorly matched for the students or, you know, might just be in the delivery you made. So PCK, um, you get better with PCK over time you hope. That's not a true statement, though, um, in general. But ideally, um, you get better the more you teach. To get PCK better, you need a critical, you need two critical skills. One is tinkering. You need to play around with something, like you're sculpting something, and you need to reflect. And um, if you take this notion um, of adapting, tinkering, if you like, and reflection, these are the two most important things a teacher education program should teach. The pedagogy, the content, the values, that's not important for the survival of the teacher and for children's learning. All of that can be acquired really easily. I can teach management in a week uh, and enough that students can go off and learn it. And in fact, one truism in American education is that teachers get better at management as they, as the more they uh, spend in teaching. So I think it's not a matter of when you teach PCK because you never stop teaching it or learning it. Um, I think the problem is that we, we cannot teach everything that needs to be taught in a teacher education program. And to assume that really you only have three or two years in most programs to do this and to assume you could do that, I think is a problem. We need to create lifelong learners. And, and to do that, we need to make the learning contingent upon what the children in the class are doing. So any, any teacher who goes, that's not working. I need to figure out how to make it work. That's a good teacher.
I want teachers like that. Teachers who just teach the lesson and, and, and they follow the lesson plan and they don't adapt and the kids didn't learn, that's not a good teacher. Someone who's curious and says, you know, that's not working really well. I better go figure out how to make that work. I don't know the answer, but I better figure it out. And Alan Launder from Australia was a big promoter of just what he called tinkering, playing around with the lesson until, you know, you get kids doing what you want them to be doing, um, more or less. Uh, That's a really important focus, I think. Yeah, Phil, I think you're right. Now, just quickly with that tinkering and with the lesson and the repeated teaching of similar lessons, I know you talked about maybe teaching one lesson a number of times. Uh, Is that similar to lesson study or... Uh, is this something different? This is um, quite different. Um, Ma- um, uh, if, you, if you look at the work of Madeline Lambert from Michigan State, she's got a couple of papers on this, I think in, I don't know if it's educational researcher or teaching and teacher education, but she, um, we, uh, we have a paper in Joford uh, that came out last year on, on rehearsals and repeated teaching. And um, uh, I, I mean, I, I think I can, I, I think a, uh, a better way of talking about this is so when they're in the, when they're in a teaching lab, we have them teach the same lesson uh, a couple of weeks in a row, and we have them serve in, as students and teachers in those lessons, so they can observe what the lesson is, and they can see how different teachers approach the teaching of whatever, from a warm up to a you know how they present the skills or whatever. Mm-hmm. They do that from our from an original base plan, but they vary substantively, uh, both in the language and the tasks and the steps they use and so on. And um, and so te- the teachers serve as both observers and students in those situations. Uh-huh. And their lessons are videotaped and they you know reflect and make edits. Whenever they make edits, and this is a good trick, we require they do it using the tracking function in Word. Right. So that they... Every time they do it, it's a different color. And we can see exactly how their lesson plan is evolving in teaching lesson one or two or three or whatever it might be. And they do that repeatedly. They do that in the classroom. They do that immediately after they teach a lesson. They may go in and make edits there. And what we're trying to stimulate here is reflection, just constant. How would I do this? And we give them under the model of deliberate practice, a great deal of, you know, many, many opportunities to do that. And then in our research studies on this, uh, we have one in review right now, and we've, we've got, we're writing another one. Um, in our research studies, we talk about how they, what they changed, you know, did they just, did they change it in substantive ways? Did they add intra-task development? Did they, did their language get simpler? Um, uh, did their language get more complicated? Um, we, you know, we look at a whole bunch of variables to try to figure out how these young teachers, novice teachers in this case, are understanding how to adapt instruction. Very good. I mean, I just for people listening to the podcast, I think it's important for them to see the difference between that. And I figured that it was different. Um, Phil, can you do me a favor and just go to the bottom of your screen to the uh, greens and just uh, click uh, the share screen so you'll be able to see us better? And then someone else can ask a question. Okay. Bottom of my screen. Oh, here we are. Just like the opposite of what you did at the beginning. Okay. Stop share. Okay. Got it. Yes. Yeah. There it is. Thanks, Phil. We can just see you bigger now. You're looking good, mate. All right. (laughs) Folks, questions. Oh, 
Okay, I will ask a question. Uh, one of your articles says that PCK is influenced by content knowledge, general knowledge, and knowledge of students gained as a result of having taught the subject matter to particular students in particular contexts. So I want to focus on the parsing particular students in particular contexts. So as students and contexts are changing consistently as time goes by, so I'm wondering if you think PCK is kind of a fluid concept, or I think you might think there is kind of essential qualities or aspect that never change. And I have one more question. It is related to the last question. So if you think PCK is a fluid concept, are there any specific or impressive trends that you have observed with development or changing PCK so far? Yeah, so uh, I, it absolutely is a fluid, con uh, 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 I don't want to say construct, but a fluid concept. So, so here's what you know. You're a teacher and you've got all this knowledge in your mind, right? You might be good at management, weak at pedagogy, good at content, whatever it is. You, you vary, right? And you're not an effective teacher. There's no such thing as an effective teacher. You're an effective teacher of baseball, but not soccer, of throwing, but not golf, right? You, it, you're not overall a magical effective teacher. You're, you're effective relative to a context, right? And so my colleague, Jackie Goodway, is an outstanding motor development. You know, she teaches preschool kids, right? She could not teach you. If I gave her a million dollars and said, teach me a curveball pitch in baseball, she couldn't do it. She doesn't even know what it is. Well, she does, but she does. She's she's English. Hey, <laughs> um, so, so you've you know, effectiveness and competence is really specific, right? Um, but but the thing that the context you have. So, if you're a gymnastics coach and you've got these wonderful activities for teaching a handstand that require people to walk up walls, but you're teaching in Florida, and there are no walls, you're out on an oval, you can't use it, right? That's a context variable. Another context variable is how much you know. Um, and so in any given instant, you, you, PCK is there at a moment in time and you bring your knowledge to bear on it. The context influences what you can do. The kids influence what you can do. And then based on what they do, ideally, and most teachers don't do this, you adapt the next task based on what the kids just did, right? So it's incredibly dynamic whether it's in math or science or whatever, okay? Because you're always making judgments, right? And the teacher, what, what, one of the problems with a lesson plan is that we require students to follow them. And it removes their judgment-making activity from teaching. We want them um, to, to look and go, what's the best thing I should be doing now for this group of kids who can't do it and for this group of kids who can do it? Teachers need to make judgments, use their knowledge, which means they need to be adaptable. Yeah, right? yeah. Phil, we used to call this uh, thinking on your feet uh, years ago. Yeah, well, the thing, the thing is that um, uh, you have to be careful with this because um, it, it, it looks differently. So, you know, if a teacher's teaching a layup and it's not working and they suddenly go to chess passing, so they're avoiding teaching the layup. It clearly doesn't work. Right. Um, but they're not tinkering with it. And that's, no. that, 
that's that's not, that's not what I mean. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm scared. So I think it, it's defined by what teachers do. Defined by yeah, and what the kids do. Right. Other questions. Well, the teachers do because of what the kids do. Yeah. Right. This, I, yeah, I have all kinds of things swirling in my head. So how then do we start to combat the world of scripted curricula? Right? <laughs> with, because you're, I mean, I agree with everything that you're saying. And, and so now, how, how, uh, how, what do we do? Right? I'm not asking for the world's, I'm not asking you to solve all the world's problems tonight. But I am just curious because how do we combat a culture that says, guess what? We don't actually trust you to make those decisions, which is why I'm going to hand you said scripted curriculum, mm -hmm. whether it's, what was it? Spark? I'm learning. Um, Spark PE or Spark Hope, P. right? Yeah. Um, and right. maybe not so much Hope as Spark, right? right? Yep. Um, or all the ones I can name, I can name a gazillion inside of inside of core education. So, I mean, and that <clears throat> that wants me to have you come back and talk more about your about joy, because it, that really feels like sort of the linchpin in this, right? Is that even inside these scripted curriculums and these scripted spaces, if we can find teachers. Um, how to get their joy. I don't know. I have to call. <coughs> the, issue, the, issue for, <coughs> the issue for teacher education is that we just don't have enough time. And trying to teach as much as we can is, I, I think, really a fool's errand. And um, uh, Hal Lawson, and um, he stole from Peter Drucker's comment um, that if we, weren't, if we weren't always doing it this way, would we do it this way? And I think we need to take that seriously. Um, in my view, the number one outcomes for teaching are adaptation and um, that leads to someone searching for answers and reflecting that should drive, you know, observational skills of what kids are doing and reflecting on themselves. These are the two most important outcomes of teaching. Everything else is unimportant. Uh, SEL is not important. Content's not important. Pedagogy is not important. If they don't have that, they're not going to grow as teachers. And the fact is, in physical education, we have the largest population that does not grow. Most teachers are teaching pretty much the way they taught 20 years ago. In fact, if anything, it's simpler, uh, not in a good way. Uh, there's overwhelming evidence that this is not entirely their fault, but they own responsibility for it nonetheless. Um, we, we, we engage in practices that produce failure. We, we just think of the effect of the lesson plan and how our students react to doing these lesson plans. And the day they get out of the university, they go, great. I probably don't have to write one again as long as I live. So we've spent all this time and two and a half years on lesson plans to teach them something they're not going to actually use. We need a better way of doing lesson planning. And I don't understand why with the technology we've got with iPads, we can't come up with something really groovy to do that. You know, um, I think everybody should move to Berkeley and, um, you know, be hip and come up with really iPhone, iPad technology to solve lesson planning. Cause it's, it's, it's not rocket science. Um, prescriptive plans aren't going to work. Um, I mean, it would be like a doctor 
going into an ICU room with 12 patients and just ignoring all the, the biochemical and all the blood pressure and all the other observational data and saying, let's just get everyone the same drug. Uh, and that's not going to work really well. Um, we, we have to teach teachers to seek out information. You know, we can't, if, you know, we may not ever teach them field hockey, but they might find themselves teaching field hockey. We have to teach them how to go find that information and where to go find it. Um, uh, in fact, that was the basis for a book that we wrote last year uh, on, on content knowledge. Um, you can't teach teachers to be um, uh, as caring as they could grow into being caring, but you could um, teach them about making eye contact with students, using their first names, greeting students when they come into a classroom, giving students time to talk as fundamental basis of what Nell Noddings would call caring. She talked about a lot more than that, but most of our teachers don't do any of those things. They don't give kids time a day to talk. Um, they don't listen to them. Um, I think every teacher should teach preschool on a Monday morning. Just try and teach when those kids come in. They want to tell you what they did on the weekend. Absolutely. If you don't give them time to tell you, they're not going to listen to you. You're not, you're not going to get anything done. So, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in helping, you know, identifying the simplest basic things that we want them to do and then teaching teachers to, to build on it, you know, to adapt. Um, but we, we can't teach them every curricular model in the teacher education program. Uh, we can't teach them all the various things we need to teach them. Uh, but we can teach them how to learn. Could you uh, define what learning is then? Uh, it seems like you're, in what you've just said, you're drifting away from content knowledge or the subject matter knowledge of physical education and that you're talking about caring and you're talking about, you know, uh, eye contact and talking about, you know, having fun, which is, you know, it is pretty closely connected to what we'd now probably call social emotional learning. So could you just talk about l learning for a minute maybe? That, yeah. Um, well, I, I guess my position has never, never changed. Teachers have, teachers need to decide what they're going to teach and what the kids can't do is what they need to teach in that paradigm. So if they, you know, going to teach, um, a, you know, adventure-based learning and they want kids to learn to communicate better, then that's an outcome and kids, kids can already do it. You shouldn't be teaching it. And if they can't do it, you should be teaching it. Right. right. Um, okay. Fair enough. Look, let's Donald and Judy's question if they want. Yeah, uh, Philip. Um, I, I'm just in about a year out of high school teaching now, so I don't know if I'm out long enough to jump the fence to kind of, you know, uh, I'm I'm very uh, careful of uh, being critical of teachers, um, having been one myself so recently in high school as such. Uh, but we have a problem. We can see that from the data you're showing. One of the things I'm just wondering is, uh, I know it's a very abstract concept, is when you talked about this, these data sets that we have and these massive, you know, it's clearly the data is showing us all this stuff is where in all of these was that concept of joy maybe measured or was it measured in these uh, studies and, and was that a contributing factor to like an experience the students had or was it just PCK itself in terms of their ability to perform and, or perform or participate in that particular task? Yeah, um, uh, the short answer and the honest answer is we didn't measure it, but we do observe it in terms of smiling. 
Um, okay. and in fact, the major outcome of our undergraduate program is that um, in the last week of teaching in our teachers, we actually track how much our students smile when they teach, how much joy they get from teaching, um, and uh, how much joy, how, mo- how often the kids are smiling as they do the various learnings that they do. Okay, um, so, it's e- so it's easy to talk about joy, but at the moment we need to kind of figure out where that joy manifests itself <laughs> in, in the PCK. Now, I'm going to well, actually... Think, let me just back up there. I think joy is very easy to measure. Um, right. I think all you have to do is, is look at the, the, um, the level of uh, engagement that students have and, the, and whether or not they're smiling and laughing and enjoying what they're doing. I think that's incredibly easy to observe. We just don't see it very much. That's all. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's one other point, as to blaming teachers, for 20 years, I didn't blame teachers. Uh, I take your point. But just remember that if a firefighter doesn't do their job, they're held accountable. Yeah. And an accountant doesn't do their job, they're held accountable. And teachers really do need to be held accountable for their job. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that their jobs are unreasonable because in some cases they are but not in the ways people think. I don't think any of the state standards or national standards are unreasonable. What I find unreasonable is large class sizes with, with large numbers of students on IEPs, with large numbers of behavior disorders in classes. That's unreasonable. That's un, that, and the only way to deal with that is through, in America, through a union. Um, but, but if you don't have that situation, if you've got 30 kids and you've got you know, five or six kids and IEPs, do your job. And I know that's cruel and nasty, but that's what I get told as a university professor. That's what police people get told. That's what everybody gets told. It's not unreasonable to do the best job you can in the context you are. The get out of jail free card is when that context is unreasonable, as it is in many urban centers in America. Agree, agree a hundred percent, Philip. So we have a problem and we know like we've learned a lot even from the socialization of teachers as well too, why a lot of this maybe kind of is happening or that it, how it is happening and stuff. So, I mean, you, you, you gave good examples there of what you've done in Ohio State to try and modify your programs and your classes to be able to improve uh, the level of uh, CCK and PCK as well too in it. Um, I mean, and I can't speak for you know, I haven't seen it and stuff. And I'm just, you know, wondering about, obviously we, we realize that we need to look at innovative responses to the way we're teaching our pre-service teachers are being taught how to teach and instruct physical education content. Um, and I'm wondering then, like, so again, I'm not going to just turn around and go, well, we didn't get trained in university, so you go solve it. So I'm thinking then is what happens that teacher when they come out of a place like Ohio State, when they have experienced what would be a, what you've described and what I, what, I, what I understand as a very innovative and much more kind of um, uh, amenable, I suppose, uh, programs and classes that are being taught to pre-service teachers that allows them to improve their uh, ability to teach when they come out of it. So once they've come out then, and I, you talk, we mentioned uh, Levitt-Ince there, and you, I think they've done some studies and stuff, and I know Deborah Tannell and Missy Parker, uh, they've worked, looked in things like community and practice, and in your paper with Gordon, uh, Avadzio, I think, is it in 2016? You're talking about the, the teachers make their practice public, they critique it, and they build it, and they pass it along. And I know I'm, I'm you know, I speak from a teacher's point of view. We don't do that very well once we're out in the, the in, in the schools and, and we're at it. So 
like we, you talked about how you did these workshops to improve it and these, these four to six, what are two to six hour workshops improved it. I'm just wondering then, is there other ways we can improve it rather than the one shot workshop? And I mentioned, because you just saw Levinson's name there and I know they've done some work in communities of practice. And I'm just wondering, have you done any work in communities of practice in uh, Ohio State? Uh, yeah, well, we try to use our program. Well, let me first of all say, if as a result of my talk, you think Ohio State has it right, I'm here to tell you we are a long, long, long way from being anywhere right. Uh, we are not where I would like us to be. We're better than most, don't misunderstand me, but that doesn't mean much. Um, what I can tell you is our teachers survive. They don't tend to leave the profession. They, but I cannot tell you that they're as adaptive as I would like in any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I do think we have a disproportionately larger number of them that are. Um, but we are a long way from where I would want us to be. Um, I think there are many ways to, oh, I hope none of you are cat lovers, to skin the cat. Um, uh, sorry if you are. Um, I, I, communities of practice, we try to teach that way at Ohio State all the time. We put our students in groups of five in a single setting, have them reflect. Communities of practice, one-shot workshops, I know they get beat up a lot in the literature, but they are actually one of the most effective ways when they're done well. But... There's no one way. Um, the issue is, and this is the responsibility of the teacher, um, do they engage in their own professional development or do they wait for it to come along? So back in 1989, Ohio State did a monograph that Deborah Tannehill, Mary O'Sullivan, Ben, um, I, yep. Daryl were all on. And in that, they, they, they had a study on expertise that was done by Siegentop and Eldar and they talked about three master teachers, Chris Bell, Gary Moore, and Bobby Siegentop. Ben will know these people. Yeah. Um, and all of these people went off on their own and became good at what they did, independent of anything Ohio State did. I would also go so far as to say the best teachers are not those that are produced by the university. It's their dispositions that made them the best teachers. <laughs> um, However, um, as I was speaking to a guy at DARPA, which is the defense um, uh, contracting group, uh, they said, should we just wait for really good captains and lieutenants to be born? And I told them they'd be waiting, waiting till the, the cows come in. Um, uh, we've got to train people. But the question is, is the training we're doing in teacher education now producing the type of teachers we want? And I think it does not. Right. It doesn't come close to it. In fact, we actually engage in practices <laughs> to produce bad teachers. Um, for, for example, um, you, in our supervision, we supervise our teachers brilliantly, right? Who, who does supervision of teachers there? I guarantee you do an outstandingly good job. And the day they go out, they're never supervised again. That is not a good formula for growth and development. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I, I think we need to rethink how we do things. Um, I would favour the final year of teaching being a paid internship um, where, where they came on campus in the evenings, but they worked in schools in the day um, in, 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 in communities of practice, two or three teachers in one classroom. Um, I would favor that as a, as a, I, I'd bump it to two years and say it and call it a master's that I would, 
I would be in favor of a pre-education yeah, degree yeah. that works with undergrads and that it isn't until after that mm. that you actually get to go and be out and in the world in well, some Back in the day, and I don't know if this was the case for Ben, but I did my teaching degree. It was a three-year degree. They kicked you out for two years and you came back and got your last year for your baccalaureate. That model was all over the world at one point. In, right. Yeah, that's not Yeah, yeah I, I, at the uh, University of New Hampshire, they had one-year internship, but it wasn't paid. Yeah, <laughs> right. No, hey, Phil, i got one last question because this is our creative pedagogy class. Mm -hmm. So I have to ask you, how would you define pedagogy? Uh, that's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, what, what do you think the relationship is between SCK specialized content knowledge and pedagogy if there is a relationship well because, you know we've got this class to create pedagogy so i have to come back to it on the last question buddy yeah look um me. i i think pedagogy is a lot broader than the typical definition of instruction and management right Agreed. Um, yes yeah, um, very broad definition here uh, i i think um uh, i i think pedagogy is about people it's about interactions. It's about the relationships you have with your students um, and, the, and the relationships the students have with each other. And I, my model for this is Doyle and the model of Walter Doyle's work and, and yeah. argue first you need a cooperative classroom. And for a cooperative classroom, you need trust. And that's not something that you get from just being in power. That's something you have to demonstrate and earn by giving kids a voice and letting them have, you know, a chance to have input into their, into where they're spending, what, nine hours a day, eight hours a day or whatever in schools. So I think ultimately pedagogy is about playing with relationships in ways that advance learning. And there are different techniques you can use to do that. You can, be dictatorial, you can be cooperative, you can be a mix of those things, you can use curriculums that bring out certain outcomes. Um, I don't know, I, um, my definition of pedagogy has come a long way over the years. Yeah, and we, we uh, like actually uh, your uh, country mate, uh, Richard Ting, who is a Buckeye, uh, talks about the term of uh, pedagogical work done in and uh, pedagogical sites, so uh, we've all read that. But it, it, what do you think, is there a relationship between pedagogy and uh, specialised content knowledge? How do you see that? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean pedag you know, um, it, the relationship is PCK. Um, I mean, you know, uh, uh, the, the people, many people read my work and think I only care about um, content knowledge, but I can tell you knowledge of the student is far more important <laughs> Than, than content knowledge, right? Pedagogy is probably the least important, but um, but you know, knowing um, knowing students' developmental characteristics, that's really important. Knowing who that kid is, what they're going through, where they live, that's important. Um, whether you can know that as a pre-service teacher in any detail, that is unlikely. Um, but you can learn something about them. Good answer, Phil. Thank you for uh, uh, answering that question. And uh, I think uh, the students have really appreciated this. It's now after 7.30 and uh, we've had a good run on it. Uh, thank you so much for being part of our uh, creative pedagogy class. 
and for sharing your knowledge and understanding and expertise and your research. And I'm sure everybody here is very appreciative of that. And I certainly am. And the next time I see you, I guess I'll owe you a beer, mate. Well, thank you for listening. I, I appreciate it, having the opportunity to chat.